We're um, picking up again this morning in our studies in Luke's Gospel. So um, if you've got a, a Bible handy, if you're watching at home, you've got a Bible handy, um, do please turn to Luke chapter 13. And uh, picking up where we, where we left off last week, uh, just going to read the first nine verses of chapter 13. And um, uh, just to sort of remind ourselves of, the, of the, the context a little bit, this is the uh, the final part of a sort of section of teaching that began at the beginning of chapter 12. Uh, remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We're in the last um, days, weeks of his life. He's heading for Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen when he gets there. And Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for what is to come. So from the beginning of chapter 12, uh, maybe in your, in your Bible there's a heading at the beginning of chapter 12, warnings and encouragements. And uh, Jesus is in this section of teaching is, uh, you know, preparing his disciples for what is to come, telling them to uh, be, uh, sit lightly to the things of the world, uh, telling them not to worry, to trust God, to watch, after, watch over them and watch after them, uh, being dressed ready for service, being prepared for what is to happen. And um, this is the final part of that teaching section. So I'm going to read uh, chapter 13 uh, from Luke's Gospel, verses 1 to 9. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it, but didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig round it and fertilise it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Let's have a word of prayer before we continue. Father, thank you for your words to us this morning. May our hearts and minds be open and attentive to what you have to say to us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So as I say, Jesus is on his way to to Jerusalem, trying to prepare his disciples for what is to come. And uh, some people are travelling with him. And they tell him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Pontius Pilate was a... Uh, fairly ruthless and brutal uh, governor, ruler, dictator. Uh, didn't really um, uh, have much time for, uh, for the Jews. They were great um, irritants to the Roman Empire. And uh, at points, Pilate deliberately antagonises them. Um, pre, uh, prior to this, uh, on one occasion, uh, Pontius Pilate needed to install a new water supply into Jerusalem. He needed to build a new aqueduct. And uh, to get the money to build the aqueduct, he raided the temple treasury. Uh, you can imagine how well that went down with 
the Jews that the money dedicated to the temple was stolen by the Romans to build themselves a new aqueduct. Um, there was a, a, a sort of an uprising, a response to that, and Pilate sent in the troops and had the uprising brutally um, crushed. So it appears that this is the only, uh, there's no other record of this particular incident other than what we have in Luke's Gospel, but it appears that um, Jewish pilgrims from Galilee have travelled down to Jerusalem, they've gone up to the temple to offer their sacrifices, and for some reason Pilate has sent in the troops and had them slaughtered. So their blood has mixed with the blood of their sacrifices. Now the thing in Jewish thought that was, was very sort of concrete in Jewish thought was that if something, if something bad happened to you, if you suffered, it was because you had sinned. There was this direct correlation between uh, the circumstances of your life and the righteousness of your life. So if you were a righteous person, then you should, that should be reflected in life going well and a freedom from suffering. And if you were an unrighteous person, then uh, you should expect to suffer and for bad things to happen. Uh, if you've ever read the book of Job in the Old Testament, that's the, that's the dilemma, that's the discussion, that's the question at the very heart of the book of Job is if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. And it's very set in Jewish thought. And so the assumption will be that um, these Galileans who have suffered this terrible fate in Jerusalem, it was because they were unrighteous. Uh, Similarly, uh, with those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, the assumption is it's because they deserved it. They'd done something wrong. Uh, It's something that I've, you know, think, well, this is 2,000 years ago. I can think of numbers of conversations that I've had with people over the years where people have um, become sick or something bad has happened and they've said, um, I'm being punished for something. Why is God punishing me? Uh, they make you know, this, this connection between suffering in this life and the fact that God must be displeased. It's a reflection of some kind of unrighteousness. And it's an issue that Jesus deals with comprehensively and breaks the link. He says, no, this is wrong. There's an occasion in John's Gospel uh, where a man born blind is brought to Jesus. It's in the beginning of John's Gospel, chapter 9. Jesus sees a blind, uh, as he went along, he saw a blind, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, and here you see this sort of concrete connection that they make, His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So in their minds, the fact that this this guy was born blind, it must be the result of sin. Either his sin or his parents' sin. That's the connection they make. And Jesus responds by saying, no, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Jesus breaks this link. And it's really important that the link is broken and that we understand that uh, suffering in this life is not because God is punishing us, not because of unrighteousness. You see, the danger of getting into that mindset and the thing that Jesus is wanting to point out as he speaks to his disciples is it makes you complacent or it can make you complacent. If your life is going swimmingly well... 
then you may conclude, oh, well, I'm, I'm all right. God must be pleased with me because things are going well. So you become complacent. And also, the danger is you become judgmental because you look at people whose lives are not going well and you think, oh, well, they're in the mess that they're in um, because of, you know, it's a direct consequence of their sin. And that's what Jesus challenges. Verse 2, Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no, they weren't worse. They didn't, this didn't happen to them because they were any worse than anybody else. And he says, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Unless you repent. And then he says about the 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Again, remember last week I was um, just talking about the the context of walking towards Jerusalem and that within a generation Jerusalem would be um, sacked by the Romans, it would be bulldozed and the temple would be torn down. Um, Jesus is saying to the crowd and to the disciples around him, he's saying, look, time is, time is short. Time is short. You need to make a response and all of you need to make a response. Um, the, the Jewish ruling class, uh, the Jewish teaching class are very complacent about what is happening they don't see what's coming down the road and Jesus is trying to wake them up and say no you all need to do something about this you all need to repent and for us too that's the um, the challenge that's the calling of God upon our lives is that we come to a place of repentance and there are a number of things involved in uh, in repenting what does it mean for us to respond to a call of to repent, uh, which we know repentance is not simply about saying sorry for things we've done wrong. It's all about changing the direction of our lives in response to what God says to us. Um, uh, the, the, the Greek word metanoia, it means to turn around and to head in a different direction. So it's not simply saying sorry for stuff that we realise we've got wrong. It's about turning around and heading in a completely different direction. And repentance begins with an acknowledgement of, well, actually, there's stuff wrong in our lives. It's an acknowledgement of, of sin and the problem of sin. Increasingly, we live in a, in a culture and in a society that um, uh, doesn't like the whole concept of, of sin. Uh, there are very few things now left in our society that are regarded as being, uh, being sinful. I think part of that is because... We don't know what to do with it. We don't know what to do when we feel bad about stuff. We don't know where to go. So it's far easier to deny and to bury and to hide. But in order to come to a place of repentance, the first thing you have to do is recognise that sin is real and sin has terrible consequences. And the most terrible consequence of sin is simply that it separates us from the God who loves us, it ruins relationship. And it ruins our relationship with God. And that is something that affects us all and something fundamentally that's human beings we need to find a way of, of addressing. So repentance begins with an acknowledgement of, um, to use an old word, the depravity. The depravity of sin, that it has devastating 
consequences. It separates us from God. And unless that is addressed, that's the situation that will pertain for eternity. So it begins with the acknowledgement of, uh, of sin. But then that should lead to um, sorrow. Sorrow over our sin. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's Gospel, um, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And it's not speaking about um, those who are uh, grieving the loss of a loved one. It's not that kind of mourning. It's mourning for the brokenness of this world. It's mourning for the brokenness that is the consequence of sin. It's mourning for what we have done that has ruined uh, creation, what we have done that's ruined our the image of God that we are supposed to reflect, what we have done that has spoiled us. It's that kind of mourning and that kind of sorrow. Um, I love um, uh, some of the language of the Book of Common Prayer and uh, just the, how powerful the language of the Book of Common Prayer is, particularly in the prayer of confession, uh, which reflects that sorrow, sorrow for sin. A part of the prayer reads like this. It says, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word and deed against thy divine majesty, provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. Uh, that's sorrow for sin. And um, how do we get to that place? Well, it's a work of the Holy Spirit to bring us to that point. In John's Gospel, again, Jesus speaks about the work of the Holy Spirit. And he says this about when the Holy Spirit comes. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, we come to this place of repentance by the invitation of God and by the work of the Holy Spirit who, who just gives us that revelation of the reality of sin and our need to come to a point of sorrow. Sorrow for the fact that we have turned our backs on God. Sorrow for the fact that we've ignored his will and his ways. Sorrow for the way that our selfishness has spoiled our own lives and the lives of those around us. And then it leads us to, so we start with acknowledgement, it then leads us to sorrow, then it leads us to confession of actually owning up to our sin and to the things that we've done wrong. And that's the thing that we don't particularly like to do. It's a comfort, though, to know that God already knows. We're not telling God anything that he doesn't already know. It's simply an acknowledgement before him when we confess our sins of, Lord, I know. I know I've messed up. I know I've got things wrong. And then, of course, the joy is that repentance leads us immediately to God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's restoration and God's resurrection. You see, the problem that the world has with sin and the reason that the world um, is in denial about the reality of sin and hides it is because the world doesn't know what to do. What do I do with this guilt that I feel? What do I do with this shame 
that I feel. The world has no answer. So the world says, well, just hide it, bury it, brush it under the carpet. Uh, The gospel of Jesus Christ says, no, no, acknowledge it. Acknowledge it and bring it to the cross, because on the cross it's dealt with. I know I've said um, on occasion before, I've never forgotten what a friend said to me many years ago about repentance. They said, repentance is the door to life. Run through it at every opportunity. Repentance is the door to life. Run through it at every opportunity. Because it's, it's the doorway to eternal life. It's the doorway to the cross. Repentance is about bringing our rubbish and placing it with Jesus on the cross. And that's what Jesus is trying to get through to this, his disciples, this crowd, as they journey to Jerusalem. He's saying, look, you've all got a problem that needs to be dealt with. And the way to deal with it is repentance. Don't leave it too late. And then he goes on to tell this uh, little parable about the man who had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Uh, he went to look for fruit on it, didn't find any. He says to the man, uh, for three years I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree. Haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? The man says, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig round it and fertilise it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Um, So uh, fig trees were often planted in vineyards. The soil in the vineyard was was usually better than the soil um, in other places. That's why the vineyard was planted there. And the fig trees growing in the vineyard would be be of benefit to the vines. Uh, Once you planted a fig tree, you would expect it to start bearing fruit within three years. If it hadn't If you didn't see any fruit by the third year, then probably your fig tree isn't going to produce any figs. So you might as well cut it down and start again. Um, So so the parable is about the fact that um, there's not much fruit being produced on the, if you like, the Israelite fig tree. It may be the, the three years, maybe, not necessarily, it may be a correlation to the fact that Jesus has, Jesus's public ministry has been uh, has, has lasted for three years up until this point. And really, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, uh, certainly in, in the Jewish nation, there's not a lot of fruit being shown. Uh, the ruling class, the Sadducees, uh, are you know, all they're interested in, they're, they're very corrupt, and what they're interested in is preserving the status quo. Uh, they're in a very good position, they're wealthy, uh, they have a lot of authority, they're tolerated by the Romans, and they don't want anyone to upsets that. Uh, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, uh, they're not showing any fruit. They don't recognise the Messiah. They're not welcoming Jesus as, uh, as the Messiah. There's not a lot of fruit. And as we know, there's a judgment that is going to come because they don't heed Jesus' call. They don't repent. They don't t- turn their lives around. There's a warning in this that Ultimately, judgment will fall if fruit doesn't start to be seen. But there's also a note to the fact that God is incredibly patient with us and more patient with us than we deserve. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig round it and fertilise it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. The warning is, you know, judgment ultimately will, you know, will come as a consequence of sin. 
But God is so patient with us. God is so kind. In um, Romans chapter 4, Paul reminds us that God's kindness leads to repentance. God is so kind. He bears with us. Uh, Peter, in his um, uh, second letter, uh, is trying to address the fact that, um, you know, why, why does God allow the world to continue in the way that it does? Why does God allow so much suffering to continue in our world? If, if God is going to step in and put things right, why doesn't he step in now? Why doesn't he step in sooner? Why does the world continue in the way that it does? And um, Peter reminds us of this. He says, um, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. His promise to bring justice. His promise to put things right. His promise to restore what has been lost and broken. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. You know, that's God's heart. That's God's desire. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. He's patient with us, not wanting us to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. That's why God is patient. That's why God allows history to roll on as it does. But... There will come a point where the tree is cut down. So in all of this teaching that began at the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for what is to come. And he's trying to prepare us. These warnings and encouragements are for us as well. That repentance is something that all of us need to do if we want to inherit eternal life. Because we have to recognise the problem In order to recognise and take advantage of the solution, the problem is our sin, that we've fallen short of God's glory. The solution is the cross, that the justice of God rests on Jesus on the cross, which is why we can run through the door of repentance and find forgiveness and eternal life. And as we do that, then we start to bear fruit. Fruitfulness is the product of repentance But the warning and the challenge is if ultimately that repentance never comes and the tree remains unfruitful, then it will be cut down. So lots of warnings, lots of encouragements, lots of challenges for us. And this morning we're going to share in communion in a few moments. And communion is our reminder of what Jesus did for us. A reminder that God is not unjust and unloving, but is absolutely just and absolutely loving. And it's his, his justice and his love that we see displayed on the cross. So as we begin to prepare to come to communion, uh, let's take a few moments. A few moments in quiet prayer. To come in repentance. And to acknowledge our, our sin, our falling short of God's glory. And allow the Holy Spirit to, to search us. And to bring us that conviction.
that conviction of sin that, that leads to life. Uh, when, when the devil makes us aware of our sin, he does so in a way that, that condemns and leads to death. But when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, he does so in a way that leads to life. So Holy Spirit, we, we welcome you, we acknowledge your presence and we ask that you would search our hearts this morning and minister your grace into our lives.